0: Today we begin what we're calling Volume 2 of Genesis, which encompasses chapters 12 through like the first part of 25. Uh, this is the life of Abraham, uh, plus a little bit of like his son Isaac will eventually get a cameo, but uh, it's mostly the life of Abraham. Now, to be clear, the book of Genesis is written as a single unit. So when we're saying this is Volume 2, we're, you know, we're coming at this and, and uh, I'm going to treat it in four volumes. Uh, because it, it helps organize you know, your own understanding of it. Because mainly, uh, it's you know, the first 11 chapters that we've already covered. That covers a 2,000-year span of time. And then uh, the, the remaining 39 chapters, which is 80% of the book, covers less than 200 years. So it really starts to, to zero in on certain people's lives, namely the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And then Jacob's sons. So uh, we're going to cover chapters twelve through twenty-five in just in in this little volume here. It's a uh, it's our second uh, movement through the book. As a reminder, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, uh, but it's also the first of five books that Moses wrote. Moses wrote those first five books: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so Genesis doesn't just function as an intro to the Bible. It functions as an intro to these five books, the Pentateuch, or the, the Torah, or the books of Moses, or the law, the Torah. Um, it, uh, it functions as an introduction to that, because all of that is really trying to get, you to get the reader to a specific understanding. Um, remember that the original audience, the intended audience, are the Jews that were wandering in the wilderness with Moses while he's writing this stuff down. And so uh, the Pentateuch as a whole, all five of these books are going to set the stage for the narrative of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? It's gonna at least tell them their history and stuff. Like this is where you came from, people of Israel. And then it's also gonna set the the stage for kind of the central topic of the Pentateuch, which is uh, the the covenant that's made at Mount Sinai. So uh, it's referred to either as the Sinai covenant or you can refer to it as the Mosaic Covenant, since Moses is the guy that was in charge. I prefer Mosaic Covenant instead of Sinai Covenant, so it's more uh, more consistent with the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and so Mosaic Covenant. Name it after uh, one of the, the, the people that were in charge, right? Uh, this connects Israel, the audience, the original audience, to the, uh, uh, to the original purpose of all of creation which was namely to, uh, you know, to live obediently to God, enjoying fruitful living in worship to him. That's, that's really what the, the uh, Mosaic Covenant will do. The Mosaic Covenant, that's the Ten Commandments and stuff. Okay? All the Ten Commandments and all the laws that you see in Leviticus and all that stuff, which are just elaborations of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is like the, the summary of all the laws. The, that law, that whole, the, the whole compendium of laws that you get in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all those laws... Uh, they're there so that Israel will understand how to have a relationship with God because that's what was broken when sin entered the world, right? That's what was broken. And so that's, that's kind of getting back at it. It's, it's how to live obediently to God. And Israel will love the law. They'll say the law is perfect, and, and the one who, who loves the Lord delights in the law. It's a, it's a big deal for them because it tells us how to have a relationship with God. And when you get to the New Testament, you kind of find out that the law is a gift and it's a good thing, but we're cursed because we can't actually follow the law. So the law kind of exposes to us where we fall short and that's why we need a savior. So that's how the Pentateuch kind of falls into the framework of the gospel, okay? It's, it's to show us that we need to have a relationship with God and it tells us how to do it and then it's gonna expose to us that we can't do it by the power of our own flesh, okay? The original audience has been freed from slavery to Egypt, uh, you know, as, uh, as God used Moses to, uh, to deliver them, they've been brought to Mount Sinai. At Sinai, uh, God makes this covenant. He, he does the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. And he says, If you obey these laws, I'll bless you as a nation. And if you disobey these laws as a nation, I will curse you. I'll, I'll ex- ex- exile you from the land that I'm promising you. That's the Mosaic covenant or the Sinai covenant. Uh, and, uh, Moses then goes from, uh, from Sinai and he goes, come on, people of Israel. And they start moving toward the promised land. And on the way they start complaining and grumbling so much that God has them wander for 40 years because they, they won't obediently follow. They won't, they won't follow in faith. And during the journey, Moses would meet with God and he'd write down these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote all five of those books. And so as the people of Israel are approaching the promised land, They're there on the brink of it. They're right there at the doorway to enter into the land and to to conquer it, to take it over. Uh, As they're there, uh, uh, excuse me, as they're approaching the promised land, they are now receiving this book, these books, someone's reading it to them, and they are hearing the story of creation, and they're hearing the story about uh, the beginning of the world, the beginning of life, the fall of man, the flood Uh, the repopulation of the world, the the start of the languages and the nations. They hear all about that. And now that the stage has been set, the world building is complete with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we come to this point where we will hear about a man that would be a continuation of something before, but he's also going to be the start of something new. He is the continuation of of this thing that God talked about way back in Genesis 3. He said, you know, the sin has entered the world, but I promise a redeemer. I promise the seed of of the woman, a descendant from the woman, will crush the serpent and will prevail. So he's the continuation of this promise. He carries along with him, the the man that we're going to look at today, he carries along with him that promise. He's the continuation of that. But he's the start of something new, Because he's the start of a nation that will belong to God, a nation that doesn't come from the world, but a nation that's called to be set apart from the world, a holy nation, a nation of priests, a nation that belongs to the Lord only. And that's all encompassed in the account of this man named Abraham. Although Abraham is a name that he receives later, he starts off with the name Abram, A-B-R-A-M. Abram is his name, and God will later change his name to Abraham. So I might use those names interchangeably, but he starts off with the name Abram. If you're taking notes, we're going to cover this in four movements. We're going to talk about the beginning of Abraham, or sorry, the beginning of Abram in chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. Then we're going to talk about uh, the call of Abram, which is chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Then we'll talk about the failure of Abram which is chapter 12, verses 10 through 18. And then we'll talk about the destiny of Abram, which is chapters, uh, chapter 13, the entire chapter, 1 through 18 is the verses, right? And th- what we're looking at here, this is really just the first of several looks that we'll take at the life of Abram, at the call of Abram, uh, you know, his whole journey of faith. Uh, and in doing that, uh, we'll see a repeating kind of theme of stories that comes up this week and then the weeks after in, uh, in God calling him into faith and into relationship, and then that being challenged, and then him having to kind of deal with those challenges, right? Let's start with the beginning of Abram, which is really his genealogy, right? Chapter 11, verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood, And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad had uh, lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. That's going to be the general structure of how these verses go. So I'm going to shortcut this a little bit, okay? Verse 14. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Verse 16. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Verse 18, when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. Verse 20, when Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. Uh, Verse 22, when Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. Uh, Verse 24, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. Verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay. As a genealogy, this is not thrilling, right? This is not anyone's favorite passage. But in these genealogies, you do have a connective thread to track God's promise of a savior, Abram is not that savior, but he's the next in line to kind of carry that promise down, and soon the savior will be born. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus, right? So Abram is going to be an ancestor of Jesus. And what we get is connective thread from Abraham all the way down to to Noah in Genesis 5, and then Noah to Shem, that's his son, and then Shem here to Abram um, here in chapter 11. So uh, uh, you get uh, this story that doesn't start with us, Right, we're not the we're not the subject of the Bible. The Bible is not about you. It's not about me. Uh, it sure ended up involving us, but all of it points forward to Christ. The Bible always points forward to the Messiah, to the promise of a Savior. Uh, that that's what the Bible's about. And so you, you really have to, to key in on what's revealed about God and about the Savior. Don't read it trying to figure out what about yourself. That will happen by, you know, like as a side effect. But uh, but that's not what the text is about. The author lays out the line from Shem to Abram, and then he gives us two important pieces of information for the future. Two important pieces of information, and then a third one I'm going to elaborate on a little bit. But two that we'll get out of the way first is, um, we find out that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren, meaning she's infertile. She cannot have children. That's a problem that the original audience knows was somehow overcome because they know they're descendants of Abram, of Abraham. And they're like, well, yeah, if he had a wife and she couldn't have children, how can we be descendants of him? But at some point, that that obstacle was surmounted. But that first first little story problem is is introduced here, that, that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren. And then second, we see that Abram began a journey toward Canaan with his father, but on the way, he stopped and they settled at Haran. So they were supposed to get to Canaan for some reason, and they stopped at Haran for some reason, and it doesn't really tell us why. Now this third thing that I want to elaborate on is that Abram is originally from Ur of the Chaldeans. U-R, Ur right? Ur of the Chaldeans, which might not be a city name. It might just mean land of the Chaldeans. It's hard to say. It's in the Fertile Crescent, that we know. That's um, like modern day today, it's uh, Iraq. Uh, It was the best place for water and for pasturing and commerce in the ancient world, ships came from the Persian Gulf, bringing uh, diorite and alabaster, which is th- those are things that you use to make statues. Um, brought copper and ivory and gold and hard woods and stuff. So there was a lot of uh, very valuable materials moving in and out of this place. Uh, we found we <laughs> I didn't find them, but you know archaeologists have found clay tablets that have been found in that area and indicates that people who were there were educated to read and write and do arithmetic. So this was high society for the ancient world. The fact that, uh, that Abram was from Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of the Chaldeans, means that he was from a very prosperous civilization. Now that's enough setup to, to get what the author wants you to know. That's what he does. He gives you the beginning of Abram. He kind of gives you all the setup for the tension that's going to arise for the rest of the story, right? And, uh, and it's going to start here, he, uh, that Abram is from Ur of the Chaldeans, he was going to Canaan, but he stopped in Haran. Now what's gonna happen? And we get to the call of Abram in chapter 12, verses one through nine. This is what it says. Now the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Great. So that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, that means his nephew. And all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh, who had appeared to him, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. All right, so what you have here is uh, God calls Abram to make a choice, right? Uh, Stay here where everything is good or follow me to something incalculably better. Because in Haran, where he settled, he had acquired a whole lot of wealth. His whole family did. Terra and his household, they had acquired a bunch of animals and servants and all that stuff. And you kind of see that they've, they've got all these people that work for them and stuff. They don't have children, but they have a whole lot of servants, a lot of people because they have so much property, so much, so much possession. And so God says, "Okay, follow me. I got something to show you. I'm going to, you know, go to the land I'm going to show you." And then, uh, you know, he wants to he wants to uh, to do something with Abram. Now, it's not like Abram obeyed because he heard God's voice and went, "Oh, well, that's the voice of God. So, of course, I'm going to follow." He didn't do that. It was it was more complicated than that. History is filled with pioneers who left civilization to seek a better life. But those pioneers were, were people that left difficulty to find something better. That is historically the pattern. That's how it's always been. Life is difficult, and so they left there to go into this unknown land to find something better. That's the story of my parents and several of your parents. Mo- all the immigrants that event- uh, eventually made it to the United States, you know, when, when, when this continent was discovered and stuff, it was to seek a better life. That's the way that pioneering happens. Abram's situation is the opposite. He lived in a prosperous civilization in his family and he has acquired an incredible amount of wealth. But God called him away from that whole situation, that, the security of that, of that environment. And he, he said, come to a place that's unknown. And God didn't even tell him the destination. He's like, come to the land, I'll show you. I want you to go to the land, I'll show you. And Abram probably, probably had a hard time imagining any place than where he already was that could be better. Because was there a better place on the earth than the fertile crescent? Was there a better place than the land of Chaldea? The Chaldeans, by the way, had a religion. They had, they had uh, multiple religions, but mostly they worshipped uh, a pantheon of gods. And in charge of the pantheon of gods was the moon god Nana, And is the moon god who was supreme among their pantheon, and there was a temple, and there were several ziggurats that uh, have been uh, discovered by archaeologists. Religious items were found littered in the homes as a normal part of life. In fact, some of those religious items are hidden in walls and things, which means that there was rampant idolatry in this culture, where they believed that these charms and these artifacts and relics would imbue them with blessing or power or protection or some kind of, some promise from above. And so they'd hide these things in the walls or they'd set up shrines and all this kind of stuff. And so the idolatry of the people of Chaldea was an integral part of normal life. It was not like some people practiced this. This was part of their culture. It was part of, the, of just the way that they were. Abram and, uh, and Abram's dad, Terah, and their whole family were part of this religion Look at Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. It says, long ago, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods. So Abram didn't start off a Christian. There's no such thing as Christian yet until the New Testament, right? He didn't even start off a Jew. There's no such thing as Jews yet. Because there's no country of, of Judea. There's no tribe of Judah. Abram started off pagan. You have to understand that before chapter 12, Abraham was a pagan. Sarai and Lot, they too were pagan. They were not part of God's people. They were not worshipers of Yahweh God. He wasn't a great guy that God God was impressed with. You know, he, he didn't win the contest of who gets to be God's favorite man. There was nothing good about him. He, just like anybody else on the planet, was sinful by nature. He was unworthy. If you notice, uh, when you get to guys like Noah back in chapter 6, you get all these comments about how Noah was blameless and he was righteous in this generation. He found favor with God. No comment like that is made about Abram. You have comments about uh, Enoch in Genesis 5 where he walked with God. No comment is made like that about Abram. You have comments about how Abel offered uh, offered stuff to to God and God accepted. He was pleased with the sacrifice of Abel in Genesis chapter 4. No comment like that is made about Abram. Abram was fallen, sinful. He grew up in a culture littered with false gods and he himself was pagan. He was part of that. And that's kind of the point. That God called him out of his unbelief. God called him out of his sinfulness and said, follow me. He didn't say, ah, you're so good that you you qualify. He didn't say that. He said, you're just as destitute, just as as depraved as anyone else. But I'm going to do something to show my mercy and my grace, my sovereign power to save. Abram was born two years after Noah died. His culture, fallen as it was, would not be a total stranger to Yahweh God. Something must have been passed down about the creation story, the flood story about God and God's promise of a savior. So when God actually spoke to Abram and said, follow me, come on, let's go. I'll take you to this land. You don't even know where it is, but I'll take you there. When he says that, it must have shocked Abram since none of the other Chaldean gods ever spoke because they're not real. And yet God spoke to him. And so he listened. A decision had to be made there. When God called Abram, he told him to leave his country, his kindred, his father's house, and by consequence, his family's religion. Think of what it meant to leave his father's household behind. It was so much more than just moving out. See, you leave your father's household behind when you move out. That's how it is for us. So we're, we're very used to that, that notion. But for Abram, it would have been very, very different. In in the ancient Near East, household gods were passed down from generation to generation. So if you left, who's going to receive the household gods? Who's going to receive the idols and the charms and the, the, the relics and the artifacts? There were elders to care for and to eventually bury. That was your job as a descendant. There were ancestors to worship and to make offerings to. There was inheritance from your family, from you know, from your uh, from your ancestors and things that were passed down. That would include, of course, possessions and land, like an inheritance always does. But also of taking one's place in the family line, and then also passing down the family's blessing to your descendants. It was a big deal, and Abram must decide between all that. He has to decide whether to abandon his land. In favor of the land that Yahweh God offers. That's a decision he has to make. He must decide whether to abandon the family he has in favor of the family that God promises, which is an incredible statement since his wife is barren. God says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. And Abram says, My offspring? Because my wife can't have children. And I'm 75 years old. So to have to think about those obstacles, like is God speaking the truth? Is God gonna deliver on this promise when it is impossible for him to have children? It's an act of faith. Abram must decide whether to trust the gods of Chaldea or go to the unknown land to worship Yahweh. Who calls him? Because none of the other gods of Chaldea were calling him. The gods of Chaldea, if anything, because they had a, their jurisdiction really just remained in Chaldea, the, the Chaldean gods, it meant if you leave Chaldea, you leave those gods behind. And that's precisely what Yahweh God was telling him to do. Everything familiar had to be left behind, all in pursuit of a promise that wouldn't be fulfilled in Abram's lifetime. The things that God is promising him, you know, this land I'm going to give to your offspring and stuff, that's not going to happen in Abram's lifetime. So he has to now take it on faith to understand he's never going to see whether or not this promise comes true. He's never going to see whether or not God is lying to him or not. He's never going to see it. And yet he believed. Something inside him thought God was worth trusting with the future that was not even for him but was for his kids and his grandkids whom he could not have because his wife was barren and he was old. Think of how much trust this would demand out of Abram. Think of the, the game that has to be played in his mind. Do I get up and leave everything that I know in, pr- in pursuit of this dream? Or is that impossible and so I'm gonna stay here where it's comfortable and good? Abram would be a stranger in strange lands among foreign and hostile powers. Nothing of the rest of his life would be familiar. He wouldn't recognize any of the land. He wouldn't recognize any of that stuff. I think if you and I are honest, it's a far greater leap of faith than any of us might have ever taken. I don't know if you've ever, ever said this. I've said this before, but, you know. Oh, I'll be a Christian as long as God doesn't call me to missions. You ever thought that? Is it just me? Darn it. You know, I'll be a Christian as long as God doesn't call me to to some place overseas that doesn't have Wi-Fi. You know, I think uh, uh, I'll, I'll follow God as long as it's kind of still within the same zip code of my comfort and familiarity, but... Not if I have to give up everything. And yet Abram believed the promises of God and God credited that to him as righteousness. That's what it's, it will say in chapter 15, verse 6. That's what it, it does say in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. I'll show you Hebrews 11, verse 8. The author of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So it didn't even belong to him. It was promised to him, but it was still a foreign land. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to what God was going to make out of that. God's call to Abram was a call to faith. Abram's departure from Ur and from Haran, from his entire origin, was obedience and righteousness. It was an act of faith. As Abram puts his previous life behind him, God offers him a, a blessing, a, a manifold blessing. He says, I will bless you and I'll make you a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you. And there's just a whole lot of bless going on. It means that Abram will receive a lot of incredible things from God. But those, those things that he receives won't be received in his lifetime. It'll just go to his descendants. It means that he'll be a vessel by which others receive blessing from God. And a lot of that won't happen in his lifetime. A lot of it will happen. Most of it will happen with his descendants. Anyone who speaks or acts against Abram will provoke God to kind of get into the arena and ensure, ensure that Abram's absolute victory is ensured. Right? To, to know that God says, I'm on your side. I'm going to bless you. And that everyone who's good to you, I'm going to bless too because you will pass on my blessing. You'll be the vessel by which I bless the whole world. And then anyone who messes with you, I will get into the ring. And I've got you. It's a scary thought. Now, for all the nerds out there, uh, there's a striking parallel, thematic parallel, between God calling Noah way back before the flood and God calling Abram right now. I'll throw a table up Just so you can see, in in Genesis 8, uh, it says, then God said to Noah, in verse 15, and here in in 12, it says, uh, Yahweh said to Abram, in 12, verse 1. In Genesis 15, it says, go out from the ark, in verse 16. In Genesis 12, it says, go from your country, in verse 1. In Genesis 8, it says, so Noah went out, in verse 18. And then in Genesis 12, it says, so Abram went, in verse 4. And then Genesis 8, it says, then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, in verse 20. Then Genesis 12, it says, so he built an altar to Yahweh, in verse 7. And then it says, in in Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah, in verse 1. And then Genesis 12, it says, and I will bless you, Genesis uh, 12, verse 2. And then in Genesis 9, it says, be fruitful and multiply, in verse 1. And Genesis 12, it says, I will make of you a great nation, which means you will multiply and you will be fruitful. In Genesis 9, it says, uh, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring in verse 9. And in Genesis 12, it says, to your offspring, I will give this land in verse 7. There are commands given to Noah. You know, he says, go out from the ark and and Noah builds an altar. And then God says, be fruitful, multiply all that stuff. And he does the same thing for Abram, except this time it's, it's a little different with Abram. God doesn't just command Abram, be fruitful uh, multiply be fruitful he doesn't just say that he says i will make you a great nation i'm going to do it he promises he doesn't just command he promises this will happen he promises now with noah if you remember noah and his family they they were the only survivors of the of the flood that destroyed everything that lives on land right he and and uh, and his family and then like a, you know the animals on the ark and all that stuff—they all survived. Everything that wasn't on the ark with them, they all died. So Noah was a new beginning for humanity. The entire human race came from Noah and his three sons. He was a, a new beginning for humanity. Now, if you if you watch how the author is paralleling the same language, he's showing you that Abram is also a new beginning. But he's not a new beginning for humanity because humanity exists. There are multiple nations and languages and all that stuff. The world stage has been set. So what kind of a new beginning is he? He's not the, uh, the beginning of a new people of the world. He's the beginning of the people of faith. That's a different kind of humanity. There are people of the world and there are people of faith. This is the beginning of God's people. And that's what the book of Genesis is about by the way, the book of Genesis is not here to just fill us in on history or explain origins and all that kind of stuff. That stuff we get as a as a fringe benefit, but God is telling you the story of how he began his own people, a nation for himself, a people set apart, a people not of the world, but a people of faith. And so God called Abram. Abram left Haran with his wife, his nephew, and, uh, and his servants and animals, they went toward Canaan. That's 500 miles on foot. Uh, that's if you travel at a normal caravan pace, which is about 20 miles a day. That's going to take you about a month. And that's what this 75-year-old man with his giant estate of property and possessions and uh, and servants. That's what he does. He stops at Shechem and at Bethel to build altars and seems unimportant. And yet the Jews, since they found out that he stopped at Shechem and Bethel, they turned those into major sacred sites later on in history. God calls Abram to the land of the Canaanites. He says, I'm going to take you to the land of Canaan. And that's important for the original audience because the original audience is walking to Canaan, the promised land, and they're supposed to go and conquer it. It's a land of fortresses. A land of chariots, a land of military powers, and they're wandering nomads that just got freed from slavery. I mean, they're good at making bricks, and they don't have the uh, the, the combat power to take on the Canaanites. And yet, they are reminded that God is calling them there. They're reminded that Canaan is cursed, and Abram is blessed. How remarkable that Abram would step out in faith. And yet, faith is always tested. It's always fraught with difficulties. You'll find that uh, if you claim to have faith in Jesus, it will be put to the test. Your obedience, your loyalty will always be put to the test. And you'll find that Abram was put to the test, and he wasn't perfect. He too, when life was not going in his direction, had moments where he doubted God. And I'll show you the failure of Abraham of Abram, excuse me, the failure of Abram in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. This is what it says. Now, there was a famine in the land, the land of Canaan, where he, he was going, right? There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, he said, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done with me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Stop there. Abram was in Canaan, he was in the land that God was, was you know, was showing him. He says, I'm, come here, I'm going to take you to this land. And he goes there, and then there's this famine, right? There's this, this, this famine in the land, uh, and now he has to ask himself, is God going to pr- protect me and provide for me in this land, or did, did God just lead me to a disaster? And he decides, mm, God led me to a disaster, so I'm out of here. Right, there's famine in the land. His 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 faith is put to the test, and he decides, "I'm going down to Egypt." And that's a normal thing because Egypt uh, is not dependent on rainfall; it's dependent on the annual flooding of the Nile, and so it's more resistant to drought and famine, uh, since the you know the rainfall doesn't really matter if there's if there's drought and stuff in in terms of rainfall. So it's normal for people from Canaan to go down to Egypt during hard seasons and things, and that's what Abram does, right? He uh, he went where God told him to go, saw that it was difficult, and so he bounced, and he decided to look for a solution to the food problem, and he went to Egypt, and by looking for a solution to the food problem, it creates a family problem, where his wife is taken by Pharaoh. In further doubt of God's protection, he pretends to be Sarai's brother instead of husband, Right, He did not believe God would protect him. This is the first of three times in Genesis where a man is going to use this trick pretending to be a brother instead of a husband because they think uh, otherwise I'm going to get killed. If Abram was Sarai's husband, then uh, Pharaoh would be like, well, you're an obstacle. I want her for my wife, but uh, she's your wife. So if I just kill you till death do you part and then game on, right? So he's like, well, he Pharaoh's just going to kill me if he knows that I'm your husband. But if I'm your brother, then I'm not an obstacle. I'm a party to be negotiated with, right? He's going he's to want to marry you, and so he has to pay a bride price. And since I'm your brother and father's not around and stuff, it has to be paid to me, and so he's going to pay me a lot of stuff. I get to live, and you, you know you'll be all right. You'll just be his wife and stuff, but other than that, everything's fine. So Abram says, that's a good plan. Let's go with that. there there are a couple things I want to deal with here. First, it seems that Sarah must be drop-dead gorgeous. She's 10 years younger than Abram. Abram was called when he was 75 years old. Who knows how many years it's been for him to, you know, get all the way over to Canaan, then famine, and then he goes all the way down to Egypt. Who knows how long that took, but he's at least 75, which means Sarai is at least 65 years old. And, you know, Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh's household and stuff, they see her and they're like, wow, I need that. So it, it seems like she's a supermodel. But I want to remind you that ancient notions of beauty were not like our notions of beauty. They didn't have supermodels. That, that didn't matter to them. Beauty didn't have to be this young, physically fit uh, woman with a lot of makeup and, you know, Vidal Sassoon hair or anything like that. That, that didn't have to happen. Uh, beauty for women included dignity and bearing and countenance, like the aura that she gives. There had to be a confidence about her, something regal where Pharaoh would say, I want that to represent me. There had to be an attractiveness that didn't have to be a, um, you know, like slender and, and shapely or whatever uh, notions of beauty are out there today. In fact, in Genesis 41, verse 2, the same word for beautiful is used to describe fat cows. And so it doesn't have to be this slender kind of beauty. It just means they looked right. She looked like, no, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Fat cow. Okay, marriage was not to satisfy a lust for flesh, like it might be for us today. Marriage was to satisfy a lust for power. That's what it was in the ancient day. Harems were filled to cement political alliances and to then state something about your political presence and power. Sarai was, sure, physically attractive, yes, but evidently in her appearance there was so much more. There was, there was a, an aura, a, a, a countenance, such that Pharaoh wanted to keep her. So that's something to understand about Sarai. It's not just that she was... Uh, He wasn't just physically beautiful in in the way that we might think of it. She was something so much more than that. Second is that Abram messed up, right? He messed up. He should not have gone down to Egypt. He shouldn't have uh, feared for his life. He shouldn't have given his wife away to be someone else's wife. There's a bunch of mistakes that he makes here. And yet, even though God was, uh, sorry, even though Abram was faithless, God was faithful and God delivered on his promise. He said, I will protect you. I'll bless you. Anyone who messes with you, I'm going to get in the ring and I'm going to take care of it. And that's precisely what he did. So Pharaoh took uh, Abram's wife. And so God's like, well, that's not okay. So he messes up Pharaoh's household. Severe plagues break out, right? Multiple, it's, it's plural, so all these diseases break out in Pharaoh's household, and it seems like it's just Pharaoh's household. And so, you know, in the ancient world, it was very understood that uh, disease was—you uh, upset the gods if you know if you're being stricken with disease. They didn't understand what uh, what viruses and bacteria and germs were. So like if you get disease, you know, the gods must be mad at you. And so all of a sudden, his household gets all sorts of these severe diseases that, that come in. And he's like, okay, what did we do? All of us, let's go figure out what happened here. And they, whatever detective work they do, they realize well, this happened after we took in Sarai. And so this has to do with Abram and, you know, they, they figure it out. And so Abram, uh, Abram turns out to be Sarai's husband. Pharaoh is so freaked out that he's like, what'd you do? Why didn't you tell me? Thanks a lot. Right? And he's like, take your wife and get out of here. Take everything that, that belonged to you. Notice he doesn't rob him. Notice he doesn't take back any of the bride price or dowry or anything like that. He doesn't take anything. He's like, everything that's yours, just go. And he doesn't mess with them. Why? I mean, Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. And he's like, just go. Because God got in the ring and he took care of it. So Pharaoh was like, okay, don't upset the God of Abraham. Abram, excuse me. Well, uh, during that time when, you know, uh, it takes time for disease to break out and all that stuff, you know, for everyone to figure it out. So there's got to be some time where Abram is just sitting there wondering what's happening to my wife. What's going on with my wife? And, you know, like, is he he worried? Is he sad? Or is he just relieved that he's alive? We don't know what's going on, but whatever's going on, he must be thinking that, well, this is the best that could happen because otherwise I would have been killed. He was not expecting divine protection and yet God protected him and God freed him. As much as you might have come to think that Abraham is a role model for us, much like the Jews thought that, he is not a hero. God is. I concede the point that uh, that Abram. Stepped out in faith, and that is incredible. And he is—he's uh, certainly given the the right acclaim in Hebrews eleven that we saw. Right by faith he uh, he obeyed, and that's incredible. But that doesn't mean that he did everything right. He fails too. Do not think that Adam was our hero because he wasn't. Do not think that Noah was our hero because he he wasn't, and do not think that Abram was our hero because he wasn't. Abram trusted God, yes, but he also had moments of doubt and wavering, and God is the one, he's the only one, who stayed steady and true. So don't don't read these passages looking for someone to imitate all the time. Don't Don't look and go, oh, since Abraham seems to be a good guy, I should always do what Abraham does. Don't do that. Look to see what's revealed about God and how he keeps his promises, because Abraham fails, God triumphs. That being said, let's get to the the final leg here, which is the destiny of Abram, which is chapter 13. The destiny of Abram. Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot, his nephew with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had previously Made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. So he went back where he was supposed to be, right? Verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of Yahweh, that's Eden, Uh, was well watered everywhere like the Garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Spoiler alert. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against Yahweh. Verse 14. Yahweh said to Abram, after lot separated from him, he said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to Yahweh. Now some time has passed, right? Abram left Egypt. He came back to the land that God told him about. He worshiped there. Things are good again. Everything's good again. And then he and Lot are doing so well that uh, they got way too much property and they can't they can't stay in the same place. The, you know, this, this, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, right? So Abram told Lot, go anywhere you want. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. You choose, uh, and, then, and then I'll go in the other direction. So great. And Lot chose to go east. And uh, we're warned that that will go badly. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. They were wicked there, and eventually God's going to destroy Sodom. We'll find that out in a couple chapters, in a few chapters, excuse me. Genesis 13, this cha- chapter here, this is kind of a regular in uh, children's Sunday school curriculum, okay? Uh, and I, I've, I've seen this lesson taught a, a bunch of times. Uh, I've come across a lot of curriculums that teach this, this chapter, and it's always a lesson about sharing, you know? Abram says to Lot, look, how, <laughs> the, the land is big enough for the both of us. You choose first, and I'll just take whatever you don't choose. And so that's how we should share, everyone, Don't be selfish. Don't choose first. Let the other person choose. That's how you do it the way that God would want you to do it. And that's what the lesson uh, turns out to be. And look, that's a valid behavioral objective to teach children. I'm not saying that's a bad lesson, right? But that's not at all what this passage is about. There is no comment by the author about the rightness or the wrongness of what Lot did or of what Abram did. It doesn't say anything about their motives it could be that Abram's just like, oh, I can't decide. Why don't you decide? Everything looks good. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left, whatever, right? You don't know his motive. You don't know if he's being unselfish. You don't know that. So there's, you, you can't, don't make this into a, a, a moral lesson, right? Don't do that. that. Again, we're not trying to imitate people here. We're trying to imitate what God finds to be imitatable. What does God reveal here? We would be overstepping our boundaries if we say that Lot was being selfish or greedy. We don't know that. Just leave it. Is Lot gonna get into trouble later? Yes. Is that why he chose it now? We don't know. So leave that part alone. What we do learn is that this is not a lesson about sharing. It, it, it tells us definitively, indicatively, that Lot freely chose to leave the promised land. He left the land that was promised to Abraham, right? God said, this is the land I'm going to give you and stuff. And Lot went in a different direction. He went outside of that territory. He was not driven out. See, if Abraham picked first, he's like, I want this land. God promised this land to me. And then Lot's like, well, fine, I I, got to leave the land then. Then he could be all bitter about it. Like God gave him this land and he, he kept this land for himself and he told me to get out right? But that's not what happened. He chose, he went, and then here's Abram in the land that God promised him. It, it all works out providentially. And, Abra- uh, and Lot can't, no one can accuse Abram of kicking Lot out or driving him out or forcing him out. That's not it at all. He says, you choose whatever you want and I'll go the other way. Lot is not a son of Abraham. He's a nephew, right? So he's not actually a descendant He's not a direct recipient of God's promise to Abram. And there would be this this odd uh, tension because since Abram doesn't have any children, who would be considered his heir? Lot. And so by increasing their, their possessions and property, Lot then leaves. They separate so that now Lot is not a competitor for the inheritance that Abram will leave. It is without question that Lot is not the recipient of the promise of God, you know, the, 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 the line of the Savior. Well, he's, uh, Lot is willfully relocated, and with Lot gone, Abram and his household are ready to hear what God does next, and God says, I'm going to give you this land. It, this is different than the first time he says. He says, you know, go, I, go to the land, I'll show you. They're there now, and he says, this is the land I'm going to give you. He, he emphasizes that. This is the land I'm going to give you, you and your offspring. And just so you know, all the land that, that is talked about here has never been possessed by the nation of Israel. From the moment God said it to today, the descendants of Abraham have not owned that land yet. Yet. It's not that God broke his promise. It's not that he's, he's not going to fulfill his promise. It is precisely that that is an end times event. If you want more, more information on that, we have a, a series called Understanding Israel that gets all into the destiny of, of God's people, of God's covenant ethnic people of Israel. But here's God explicitly promising Abram that this land will be yours. And that hasn't even happened yet, but it will. Well, let's bring this all kind of down to an end here. Uh, this is, you know, a, a, a few small scenes that will repeat themselves in themes and stuff, and and what we get here is a picture where God asks Abraham to to give up everything, but God doesn't ask Abram to give up anything that He's not going to replace. Everything that God tells Abram to leave, God will replace with something better. Abram is asked to leave his land. God takes him to a new land. After he arrives there, God says, I'll give you this land, and the land is bigger and better. Abram is asked to leave his family, which is his protection and his security, and he is promised a family that will become a great nation, which is bigger and better. And as he did with Abram, God sometimes asks people to leave one situation so that he could bring them to another, better situation. Sometimes God gives back to us far more than we left behind. And I say sometimes uh, because it's important in these formulations. Here, um, Matthew 10, uh, one of the hardest sayings of Jesus He says, uh, whoever loves father, mother, son, daughter, you know, more than me is not worthy of me. You have to leave it all, right? If you care about that stuff more, if you care about your comfort, if you care about living with Wi-Fi more than me, you're not worthy of me. You cannot be my disciple. And then that makes us go, wait a minute, That, that means we have to leave everything. And that's really scary and stuff. And then in Mark 10, verses 29 to 30, Jesus says, whoever leaves house, brother, sister, mother, father, children, land, you know, whoever leaves all that stuff for my sake and for the gospel, that person will receive a hundredfold in this time with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. So it's interesting. He says, uh, if you leave all that you came from, you will gain more than that in this time. So you think you left a few brothers and sisters but you're going to get this huge body of brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to be plugged into something much bigger, much, much grander than you ever could have imagined. But it's going to come with persecutions, not prosperity. It comes with difficulty. It comes with strife. In the age to come, it'll come with eternal life. Right? This lifetime will still be fraught with hardship and tragedy. But in the age to come will be eternal life now different people might be asked to leave different things right the the rich young ruler if you remember like in luke 18 for instance he was told to sell all that he had and give it to the poor if he wants to become a disciple and god doesn't ask that of everyone but he does require that everyone who wants to follow him must be willing that's different you must be willing to leave it all. He doesn't ask you to leave it all, all the time. He doesn't ask everyone to leave everything. Doesn't tell everyone to sell it all. But he says, if I did tell you, would you? That's what we learn of God. While, God's, uh, while God promises that no sacrifice is going to be made in vain, do not think of riches as the incentive. Right? Don't think, oh, I've got to follow God because he's going to give me something bigger and better. Like that's not the incentive, right? He's not saying, "I'm um, just you give up your riches so that I can give you more riches." That's not it. That's that's prosperity gospel. We'll walk away from stuff like that. Right? He's saying what you'll get is better, but it's not always in the same currency. It will be better. But in this in this lifetime, it comes with persecution. So if you think it's going to be an easier, happier life, not necessarily Jesus doesn't ask us to leave everything that we love, but when he does, our our resolve must be firm. And then God promised Abram that Abram would be blessed and would be a blessing. And that prom that promise extends to to everybody who follows in the tradition of faith. If uh, if you if you believe in, in God, if you if you trust in him, if you trust in Jesus, then you will be blessed, yes and you will be a blessing. We are experts at being blessed. We are experts at getting stuff. We love getting stuff. We love being blessed. We are not experts at being blessings. When it comes to the blessings of God, you can think of yourself either as a cistern or an aqueduct. A cistern collects and pools up blessings. An aqueduct passes it on. It's a simple diagnostic if you're a disciple of God, trusting him, following him to something greater. Everything that God blesses you with, is it a blessing to others? Your health, your skills, your intellect, your gifts, your money, your time, your possessions, your energy, Do you collect and pull it up? Or do you pass it on to bless someone else? These are direct expressions of whether or not you collect and pull up for yourself or pass it on to others. Whether or not you are in the tradition of faith. Whether or not you trust God. Apply that to your spiritual blessings. Have you been blessed With forgiveness for sinning against God? Yes. Do you just pull that up and collect it? And then when someone sins against you, you get bitter, annoyed, angry, vengeful? Do you slander? Do you gossip? Or do you pass on that forgiveness? Are you an aqueduct? Have you been given the sacrificial love of God? Yes. Yes. Do you sacrifice of yourself in loving others? Has God been patient with you in the slowness of your growth and transformation? Yes. Are you patient with others and how long they take to grow? Do you collect and pool up blessings for yourself? That's what the people of the world do. That's what they did at the Tower of Babel. That's what they did throughout history. That's what they still do today. The people of faith pass on the blessing of God. You pass on that safety and freedom and peace to others. The call of Abram is very important as a setup to the gospel, to the call for every believer. Because if you believe in Jesus, I mean, you gotta, you're skipping a ton of history when we're going from Abram to Jesus. We're skipping a, a whole lot of other important features and things that you need to know. But when you believe in Jesus... The call is very similar. You leave everything that you used to be and you, you take on a whole new direction, a whole new life. And you know in faith that all of it will be replaced. And most of that you won't experience in this lifetime. The call to faith won't be a clear path. Everybody wants a clear path, right? Abram, he was shown a land, and then he's like, what do I do now that I'm in the land? And then he just starts wandering and stuff. He kind of does his own thing, because God didn't give him very specific instructions, like get there, stay there, and don't move, even if there's famine. He doesn't say that. He lets him figure it out and stuff. And like all the time, we want distinct direction. We want specific instruction. We want signs from heaven. We want this this very uh, understandable way that God wants us to go and what he wants us to do. We always want that, But there can be famines and there can be pharaohs, there can be financial hardships, there can be relational conflict, tough choices, crippling tragedies and losses. And then the choice is for you to decide whether or not you're going to flee from where God's leading you or to remain faithful and stand your ground because he called you there. Do we do that? Well, not always. We fail, of course we fail. We constantly fail. We frequently fail, severely fail. And we can get down on that. We can say, I, I think I'm a believer, but I, I keep failing. And then you have to stand back and remember that even when you fail, even when you are faithless, God is faithful. The forgiveness we have in Jesus covers all of you, past, present, and future. He covers your failings. That's not so that you'll be like, well, great, I've got safety then so I can sin and fail as much as I want. That's not it. Because that's, that's not worship of God. That's not even trust in God. That's trusting that sin is better and God will just give you insurance. No, it's uh, the, the forgiveness of God and the security that you have in God is to assure you that your destiny with him is secure because his promise doesn't fail. He's leading you to eternal life in a blessed land to be God's people that are called out of the world. And in that, you are thoroughly blessed and you're to be a blessing to others. Forgiving as you've been forgiven in Christ, showing grace and patience as you've been given by God, and of course, like Abraham, the call to leave every blessing you used to to seek. You leave all that behind And you follow after God by faith in Jesus, and it'll always turn out better. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we trust you, and you are calling us out of sin and calling us into holiness. It means that we have to abandon our pride, our greed, our anger, our laziness. We have to abandon everything that wants to collect and pool up blessings for ourselves. We have to abandon our selfishness, our self-centeredness. And we have to go after you we have to go the way of Jesus. He has called us to repent of the way that we were and to trust the way that you are and to live like that. And that is difficult. It's, uh, it's something that we can't do by the power of our own flesh. And so we pray that you would fill us with the energy to do it. And in those moments where we fail, help us to rest assured that the blood of Jesus has covered us, forgiven us, secured us, so that we can follow, not fearing that we're going to lose our status with you, but we can follow joyfully, knowing that our sins are forgiven. And so confidently we could come back to you for affection and intimacy in our relationship and to keep growing and to resume growing in holiness and righteousness even after we failed. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the call to faith. And thank you that everything we leave behind is stuff that's going to burn up anyway. And what you give us in return, in replacement, is eternal. We look forward to it, Lord. And we leave everything that you call us to leave so that we could take hold of you. Bless us as a church. Keep growing us in our journey of faith. May you be glorified as we follow after you. pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.